You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Dr. Astrid, and I'm the Executive Director of Resolve Network and a Senior Expert for the Program on Bioextremism at the United States Institute of Peace. I'd like to welcome everyone to the first event in the seventh annual Resolve Global Forum series and say a bit about Resolve's work and introduce today's event. For those of you who are new to Resolve, the Resolve Network is a global consortium of researchers, research organizations, policymakers, and practitioners housed at USIP. Resolve is committed to better research, informed practice, and improved policy on violent extremism. Our research initiatives which span thematic and geographical areas, include commissioned original research, capacity building efforts, and convenings to provide key insights on specific aspects of violent extremism, battering violent extremism, research, policy, and practice. For more of our work, please visit our website and follow us on Twitter. Today's event discusses questions and themes that emerged from Resolve's long-running community-based armed groups project, or CBAGS for short, conducted in partnership with USAID's Africa Bureau's Office of Sustainable Development. We're very grateful for their continued support and funding on this important topic, which has enabled us to conduct extensive research, including multiple field research case studies across Sub-Saharan Africa. CBAGS often emerge in fragile or conflict-affected regions, where official security actors are perceived as problematic or ineffective, providing their own brand of justice and security with varying degrees of, of popular support. Our research has explored the types and forms of sea bags, as well as examining the factors that drive their creation and evolution in sub-Saharan Africa. Through fieldwork and case studies that we've commissioned, we investigated the role that sea bags play in the complex, complex conflict ecosystems in which they exist and seeing how they are key actors in local peace and security, which can have both positive and negative implications. Furthermore, we apply the gender lens and research women's engagements with CBAGs, including their roles and motivations. However, as we reach the end phase of this project, we seek to explore the roots out of violence for CBAGs and their members. Whilst in recent years we've seen many programs aimed at disengaging violent extremists, helping them to reconcile their communities, However, there's been much less attention given to how former members exit CBAGs. What we wanted to ask in today's event is, are such disengagement and reconciliation programs suitable for CBAGs? If so, what lessons can we learn and how might they differ? Before we start, some general housekeeping. The event will start off with some brief presentations, followed by a moderate discussion before providing an opportunity for you, the audience, to ask your own questions through a moderated Q&A. We encourage you to ask questions to the speakers. You can submit your questions on the USAP event page where you're watching this webcast, on USAP's YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag ResolveForum. The session's moderator will incorporate some of the questions into the broader conversation with the speakers. As a reminder, this event is on the record and will be available on USAP's YouTube afterwards. Without much further ado, I'm honoured to introduce today's moderator, Dr. Mary Beth Altier, Research Advisory Council and a Clinical Associate Professor at New York University's Centre for Global Affairs, 
where she directs the master's degree concentration on transnational security and the initiative on emerging threats. She has over 10 years experience researching disengagement and re-engagement of violent extremists and has recently published a review of the lessons from 30 years of literature from DDR with the Resolve Network. Before handing over to Megbeth, on behalf of USP and Resolve, thank you again. We look forward to an insightful conversation. Thank you, Alistair. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be here uh, with two incredible experts to discuss whether what we know about disengagement and reconciliation approaches for violent extremists and ex-combatants in the context of DDR would apply to community-based armed groups, or what we call CBAGs. Uh, so before we begin, I just want to introduce our panelists. Um, so first, we have Kamina Diallo. Uh, she's an expert on gender and international security and a PhD candidate at Sciences Po, uh, where she received her undergraduate degree in international affairs. Ms. Diallo was a consultant at Deloitte for the public sector in Africa before joining a transnational research team based in Dakar, working on the bureaucrat bureaucratic <laughs> bureaucratization of uh, African societies. In 2020, she worked for the United Nations on the theme of gender mainstreaming on the 20th anniversary of the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda. She has published several articles and studies on women in the security sector in Cote d'Ivoire and on the impact of post-crisis programs on Ivorian uh, ex-combatants, the subject of her doctoral thesis. I'm also excited to introduce you to Lauren Van Meter. She is the Director of Peace, Climate, and Democratic Resilience at the National Democratic Institute. She's a peace and security expert, having worked on major diplomatic initiatives and peace and conflict resolution processes at the Pentagon, the State Department, the United States Institute of Peace, and the Atlantic Council. She joined NDI in 2018 and in 2022 was asked to lead the Institute's Peace, Climate, and Democratic Resilience Division, which will develop innovative democracy and governance approaches to some of democracy's major challenges. Dr. Van Metra is a leading expert on community and democratic resilience, having conducted research and led field initiatives on building the strength and capacity of communities and governments to resist different forms of shock, such as violent extremism, hybrid warfare, and environmental degradation. All right, so I wanted to begin with Lauren. Lauren, the formal CBAGS project, which was launched in 2018, as Alistair mentioned, is coming to a close. Can you tell the audience a little bit about um, the background of this project, the motivations for it, um, and exactly what a community-based armed group is? So how does that extremist organization or ex-combatants in the context of civil war? Um, thank you, Mary Beth, um, and thank you to the Resolve team. Um, it's really been a privilege to have been a part of the launch of the Resolve Network's Community-Based Armed Groups Project um, at the beginning, four years ago in 2018, um, and today in one of its uh, final sessions. Um, I, want, I really want to compliment the Resolve team on launching this initiative um, because I think one of the important reasons um, that it was launched was to provide an extremely nuanced perspective on the impacts of violent extremism on local conflict uh, dynamics, how the arrival of VE groups and, and international response networks, our own responses, were igniting, transforming, realigning local security arrangements um, including among community-based armed groups. Resolve really successfully moved the security community away from this extremely narrow perspective on local security 
to widen the aperture so that we could all see how communities, women and men, civil society, and community-based armed groups were responding to the new security dynamics. I think one of the other important um, accomplishments of Resolve and one of the reasons um, for its beginning um, was employing local researchers and connecting them with no noted experts um, so that we could not only understand the local conflict dynamics and make sense of them, but in the process, advance thinking more broadly on a whole range of issues. Um, localization, which is so important to peace building right now, gender in armed groups, um, and security sector reform. So to kick off this discussion, um, I have been asked to, uh, in many ways, do a, a tutorial on, uh, on um, the difference between non-state armed groups, such as violent extremist groups, or rebel and insurgent groups, which is really important for today's discussion on whether reintegration and demobilization um, efforts um, apply to community-based armed groups. So in thinking about community-based armed groups and how they're, they're different from these other non-state actors groups, I'm going to hit you all with four points. Um, first is that while community-based armed groups are a subset of non-state armed groups, um, unlike insurgent or terrorist groups, they don't seek to disrupt or undermine the state in order to uh, establish an alternative political system. They really advance the local ambitions of their stakeholders. So they're, they're very locally um, rooted organizations um, with their stakeholders being the state, community leaders, formal or informal government institutions. Um, in general, they're, they're sort of status quo seekers. They're not revolutionaries. Um, second, community-based groups are extremely fluid organizations. They can start as hunter groups. They can morph into community or ethnic militias. They can then be deputized to serve with the military, or they can form alliances with insurgent groups. They're generally not motivated by political ideologies or worldviews, but by external shifts in the political security environment, which explains their fluidity, this response to these shocks um, and, and, and emerging trends. Um, I think another important factor for the discussion of, of sea bags um, is, is how they use violence and how they act as governance actors. Some sea bags um, negotiate how and when they use violence with local or national stakeholders. This is sort of a spectrum. They use violence. Um, their use of violence is rooted in socially accepted norms in the community, um, and they may use it more discriminately and protectively, such as self-defense groups. So that's one end of the spectrum. Other sea bags use violence more coercively and indiscriminately, often to advance their own material interests. Um, and this, on the other end of the spectrum, these, these more Milan groups are gangs or vigilante groups. Um, the other important factor um, for purposes of our discussion today is the different roles that sea bags can play in their communities in terms of governance. They can administer justice, they provide social services, and they can even play governance and political roles. And how sea bags use violence um, is, is and, and how they government, govern is absolutely critical for the discussion today on how they should be demobilized and reintegrated into communities. Um, after all, how they use violence and against whom um, is going to impact 
um, discussions around demobilization and integration and their role as governance actors will also be a critical factor as they transition from armed groups to civilian life. Um, with that, Mary Beth, um, I will turn it back over to you. Thank you, Lauren. That was a great, great overview. Okay, so shifting to Kamina. Um, Kamina, can you tell us a little bit, um, drawing on your own research and experience, um, you know, how individuals disengage from sea bags and just a little bit about what you've observed uh, with these groups, um, particularly I know in Cote d'Ivoire, you've been, been working on them. So what does that process of disengagement look like that, uh, for them? And what are some of the, the common drivers of disengagement in that, that DDR process? Yes. Um, first of all, I would like to thank the Reserve Network for the invite. It's uh, always a pleasure and um, always interesting to to uh, learn more about sea uh, bags. Um, I've been working on female and uh, male participation in um, non-state armed groups, including on uh, community-based armed groups in Cote d'Ivoire since uh, 2014. Uh, and this uh, really quick presentation uh, is based on fieldwork that have, have been carried out uh, since 2014 in three uh, locate, um, in three cities in Abidjan in Abidjan, Boaké, which was the headquarter of the rebel groups, and in Korogo, which is another city from the north of Côte d'Ivoire. It's really, I, I appreciate that because uh, the focus, the, my main focus is on um, the rebels, and within these groups, there were um, a subgroup, uh, as uh, Lauren explained, uh, which were the um, traditional hunters. Uh, and those traditional hunters, called Dozo, uh, for the for the case of Côte d'Ivoire, um, some Dozo individually uh, joined. Uh, the rebellion during also. Uh, during the crisis, during the, the rebel groups, and uh, within the rebellion, there were some uh, units uh, made of dozo, and those units uh, were also composed with women. So just to give you the big picture. Um, so basically, based on my research uh, on female and male ex-combatants uh, from non-state actors, and which includes, of course, uh, sea bags, um, what we can say is that CBAG's uh, members' uh, disengagement is really similar to, in many points, to um, their counterparts, ex-combatants uh, from non-state armed groups in Côte d'Ivoire. Um, what I've been uh, working on is um, that there, there have been three main paths uh, for disengagement in Côte d'Ivoire. Um, the first one is um, that some former CBAG uh, members were integrated into the official security and uh, administrative apparatus, uh, either as uh, soldiers or as a civil, uh, civil servant. Uh, this was made during the post-conflict era, uh, and there were two main ways. One was after 2007, because uh, after 2007, there were an agreement between the rebellion and the, the, the states, uh, and they integrated uh, more than 8,000 uh, ex-combatants, including uh, some dozo, into uh, the army. Uh, 
the other group is uh, the other the the second wave is made of uh, ex-combatants which joined the, the the rebellion after the post-electoral crisis in 2011, and. Just another um, precision, maybe, is that in 2017, there were a mutiny in, uh, in Côte d'Ivoire uh, made by those 8,000 soldiers um, ex-combatants uh, who were integrated within the army. So they, have, they still have uh, a really important role uh, within the, the state, uh, uh, either as threats uh, threat or as protectors. We can talk about it later on if you want to. Um, so I, I've been talking about the first path, uh, which was the, the fact that some of them were, were able to join the army. Um, the other path was the, the fact that some of them reintegrated the community without going through DDR processes. So we can call it uh, self-disengagement uh, and self-reintegration. Um, there were some of them, so, 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 so those of them who self-reintegrate, um, some just went back to other activities as traders, herders, um, uh, drivers of uh, motor taxi and so on. And some other, um, they were in, uh, in, they joined some association of Dozo, for instance, and they continue to work in security sector. We will uh, focus on them uh, later on if you have uh, a little bit more time or we can discuss uh, about them uh, later. Um, and so, yes, for those who stayed in the security sector through those associations, uh, they are still trying to negotiate their role as a security auxiliary with the state with uh, uh, relative success. And the last uh, path I would like to highlight is, um, is those who joined the DDR process, the national DDR process, um, mainly voluntarily. Uh, there are many programs uh, of DDR organized uh, during the crisis in Côte d'Ivoire, but um, I've been working on two main of them, the more successful, if I can, can say. And um, so those, um, in this case, they were supported by the, the programs create, uh, to create income generating activities. So some of them were working as uh, motor taxi drivers, traders, chicken farmers, pig farmers, uh, builders, and so on. Um, what we can say is that within the subgroups, those who joined uh, the DDR process, there are those three subgroups. Um, those of whom, uh, those for whom the plain DDR activities worked, so their activities uh, is flourishing and they are satisfied with the DDR process and the fact that, of joining the, the DDR process. And those for whom it didn't work, if I can say. And in this context, some of them have switched to other activities or have returned to their former activities, sometimes as traders, helders, and so on. And there is a third group, and this is on this group that I'm really working on. Um, they, 
decide to organize themselves as uh, associations of ex-combatants, uh, and uh, they are mobilizing to obtain more money from the state uh, or to obtain a job. Or, uh, and also they are, they are mobilizing to, uh, to gain recognition uh, from the state. Um, if I may, I'd like to give some details on female combatants within this framework. Um, in Cote d'Ivoire, as part of the post-conflict process, uh, women who joined the armed groups were considered as ex-combatants um, on the same basis as men, which is not the case in all the process. So it's always interesting to decide that. In the context of DDR, there were, as I said, uh, many veterans associations which were created, and there were also female veterans associations which has been created. Uh, in uh, in this framework um, and the women i've been uh, working with um, i can divide them between three uh, two groups uh, there were some women who joined the army or the paramilitary uh, corps and they are pretty satisfied with the post conflict uh, era and there, there are some other women who joined the DDR process who, who self-demobilized, uh, and they um, benefit from income-generating activities. Um, most of the time, uh, those of uh, the women who benefited from income-generating activities uh, had um, lower satisfaction than those uh, who joined the uh, army or the paramilitary corps um, for many reasons that uh, I can detail later on. Uh, another point I, I would like to emphasize is that uh, it should also be noted that during our investigation, we had the opportunity to meet some women who were considered as ex-combatants, uh, or some men as well, um, but who had not belonged to any armed groups. Uh, according to um, some DDR staff uh, members, uh, some women who had uh, never been members of armed groups had uh, briefed World laws to have their names included on lists uh, provided by uh, DDR as part of the profiling ex, um, of ex-combatants. So um, I just wanted to highlight the fact that corruption is also part of all those uh, processes. And sometimes, if you are not uh, within the network, you you can't join the official DDR process. And it's also uh, the reason why uh, some of them decide to uh, self-disengage uh, uh, and to go back within the community directly. Um, it's, uh, it's really uh, important. Another important fact that I wanted to highlight is um, about the dozo. Uh, as I said, I've been working on the DOZO as a subgroup. But it was really interesting because um, um, DOZO, the, the DOZO um, were, how can I say that? They were organizing into association way before the crisis. Uh, some other decided to recreate or create new associations uh, after the, the crisis. 
to uh, to stay and to continue to work within the security uh, within the security uh, sector um, as auxiliary but also uh, they decided to uh, create those associations um, to, to, for, for, to gain money because uh, while they are working in the, within the security sector, it's a way for them to, to, to gain some, um, some money. So what we can say is that um, whether or not they are going through uh, the DDR process, uh, some other engage in um, many activities that, that are still uh, linked to the security sector. Um, and while the state encouraged to disengage uh, from the rebel groups uh, through DDR, for instance, uh, some members of CBAGs, uh, especially the DOZO, uh, want to stay in the security sector um, for many reasons. As I said, the money, uh, security aspect, because their community uh, uh, still need protection, especially in the rural areas. And they consider also it's, um, the protection of the community as their ancestral role. So this is also the reason why they they try to uh, to stay within the um, the security sector, and um, so for this reason, the most of the 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 members of CBAGs I've I've been working with, they are for me partly uh, and they partly disengage because they they try to uh, stay within the security sector. In um, in some, um, but as a in a tricky way, if I, if I can say, and uh, their mobilization within association is also a way for them to to, to stay within this uh, this sector. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kamina. That was wonderful. Such rich information, um, really, really enlightening. So wonderful to hear um, about your research and, and your experience there. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, you know, it, it does seem that disengagement and reconciliation and reintegration approaches uh, make sense in certain contexts. And Lauren, you talked about when you give us an overview of bags, you talked about groups that, um, you know, are coercive in their use of violence and groups that have a more negotiated use of violence with the community. So I wanted to ask both of you, you can feel free to chime in, um, you know, you know, in what context do you think these approaches are, are useful or how are they useful? And also, you know, might we need different approaches? I mean, CBAGs seem to comprise so many different types of groups. So, you know, Lauren, you mentioned gangs. Like, do we actually want to reintegrate gangs in the military? No. Um, so, you know, it depends on these groups, I think, and whether they're they're predatory or more, more based in the community. So any insights on, you know, one, do we need these approaches or in which contexts um, are certain approaches more, more appropriate? Lauren, do you want to kick us off? Um, sure, Mary Beth. And I think you raise a great point, um, which has often been um, problematic um, in terms of thinking about CBAGs and um, reintegration and disengagement, um, which is that we often make certain assumptions around community-based armed groups um, and apply them to the entire group um, or, 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 you know, 
panoply of groups. Um, and I think that that is really um, uh, hurt um, our efforts um, to help CBAGs make this transition. Um, I think I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the assumptions that we make about CBAGs and what that's meant um, in terms of um, some really, really problematic um, interventions and some really disastrous results um, in terms of, of engagement in CBAG transition. Um, I think one of the, the early and really faulty assumptions um, that really needs to be addressed um, and it was fascinating listen to Camilla's presentation um, to see a little bit of the advancement in Cote d'Ivoire in terms of engagement with community-based armed groups, um, which in many ways historically has not been there. There's often um, been the assumption um, that community-based armed groups um, in, in a way don't need this sort of DDR engagement or this transition engagement um, in the same way that um, insurgent groups or rebel groups do um, who are more threats to the state. Um, and there's this sort of assumption that um, communities, uh, CBAGs don't need reintegration um, because they will simply melt back into the communities um, that you know, that they came from. Um, so I, I think that's been a poor assumption. Um, and we saw from Kamina's uh, presentation um, that uh, community-based armed groups are actually made up of many different layers of groups. Um, so while we have originally begun to take on community security um, tasks, um, they then may evolve into community security providers. They may negotiate new relationships with the state and other insurgent groups. Um, and then in that process, they become fundamentally different organizations. Um, you saw this with the civilian defense forces in Sierra Leone. You saw it earlier in Cote d'Ivoire, um, community with the Bankati movement, um, which is that you began to see many different layers of groups um, interacting on these traditional um, uh, hunter and, and security um, protective groups. Um, when that happens, that is when you have sort of in many ways the danger of coercive versus more negotiated violence. Um, you see that these new recruits um, often don't come from the same community traditions. Um, they don't share the same social norms around violence. You begin to see that these recruits are given very quick introductions to the social and cultural norms of the group, not years of the socialization of the original members. You begin to see as DC bag um, roles and responsibilities expand, um, that they become detached from the communities. They're deployed to other parts of the country. Um, their social and community norms are replaced by state interests and norms around the views of violence change. Um, so I think it's very important, um, as Kamina has laid out, um, that you think of sea bags um, as not um, one, don't make assumptions about who they are as a group. Um, that um, that they are in groups for very, very different um, reasons, economic reasons, protective reasons, um, and then um, uh, normative reasons. Um, in many cases, 
Um, these more layered elements um, of sea bags, um, the ones that join later, that are engaged in coercive violence, um, the ones that are unmoored from their communities, are the ones that are often not engaged in DDR or transformation processes. And we see there, um, as we did in Sierra Leone, that these often become the criminal elements within the communities. We saw them move into the diamond trade in Sierra Leone and Cote d'Ivoire historically. Historically, they contributed to growing civil violence coming out of the coups and election contestation. I think the other thing that I'd like to um, to, to address, which Kamina is so um, eloquently addressed as well, is that often the impulse um, here, um, which was tried in Cote d'Ivoire, is to integrate um, community-based armed groups into the armed forces. And I think that can be done for many reasons. Number one is just to establish oversight over groups that could potentially be a threat to the state. Um, but there may also be more positive impulse on the side of international groups to really integrate into the armed forces groups that are more responsive um, as community-based armed groups can be to citizen and community um, uh, interest in security and definitions around security. Um, but I, I think Kamina has actually pointed out the danger in that, um, which is that armed forces are um, nest beds of, of nepotism, patrimonialism, factionalization, and exclusion. Um, and we see the danger here that integration of community-based armed groups only contributes that sort of factionalization and politicization of the armed groups, which we saw in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and then on the other side, where we've seen um, community-based armed groups, instead of integrating that community perspective into the armed forces um, can actually be captured locally as well, um, where you see community-based armed groups, again, engaging in more coercive forms of violence as traditional leaders manipulate local police forces or local military forces um, in order to engage in localized conflict um, or, or suppress local groups. Um, so. That's just some of the, the assumptions that I think have been made about community-based armed groups and how our own interventions have played into that coercive, negotiated um, dynamic of violence. Wonderful. Thank you, Lauren, for those insights. Um, before I turn it over um, to Kamina to, to weigh in, I just wanted to remind everyone uh, in the audience that if you have any questions as we're talking, uh, please uh, use the Q&A function or uh, drop them in the chat, uh, depending on which platform you're on, because um, we will be taking audience questions in a bit. Um, so Kamina, do you, do you want to... Um, let us know what you think. Yes, of course. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Lauren. I, I totally agree with uh, what you said. Um, do we need uh, these approaches? I think um, the, the problem in Kodiwa is the fact that uh, there were no specific uh, um, programs. Uh, they, they didn't approach the, the, those groups uh, specifically. They approached them as a whole. And uh, they did the same uh, for the women because uh, the um, the DDR was not uh, gender sensitive; it was gender blind. Uh, even if they say in some some texts that uh, DDR process was gender sensitive, when you 
ask women and what just just observe what has been um what were what has been doing what has been done during the the DDR process uh it was gender blind and the fact that uh we approach all those uh layers of groups the same way uh, has huge consequences on uh, the, the the post-conflict era because uh, you can't approach uh, civilian who, who who have never uh, who joined the group for for I mean material reasons or even security during a particular uh, time frame as you approach uh, someone as a dozo who even before the crisis uh, was involved in the security sector. So you, you can't, it's difficult to expect from them that after the crisis, they, they will just uh, go back to their former activities because most of the time their former activities was in the security sector. It just evolved during the crisis. Uh, even if it wasn't their main activities uh, during the crisis, uh, the security uh, uh, aspect was uh, emphasized, and it it was giving them some um, financial security, uh, legality, and other um, criminal activities. Uh, so basically, what what I can say is that uh, it's really important to to uh, as resolve is doing it's really really important to um, to try to get more information about the context uh, about what are the different groups we are trying to demobilize why do they join the groups it's really important what were their activities during the crisis but maybe and most importantly what were they doing before the crisis and i think it's point that most of the time uh, we we don't emphasize we we want to know what the groups and uh, what they were doing during the crisis but if you want a good i guess reintegration program i believe it's really important to know what they were doing before the crisis uh, because this before can explain also uh, in which activity you can reintegrate them well uh, and you can also interrogate why they they, they stop their activities to, to join an armed groups, and um, so I believe it's really it's really important um, to really to, yes to really um, to really to really uh, try to understand what are the what is the context the local context and even in Cote d'Ivoire it's different what happened in the north is really different from what happened in the south is even more different from what happened in the in the in the west where there were also uh, multiple groups so it it uh, it, uh, it needs time it needs a uh, micro level analysis and it needs uh, also a long term uh, perspective before the crisis and also a, a prospective uh, analysis. Thank you. Thank you, Kamina. I absolutely agree with you. So the DDR literature does talk a lot about the fact that we do need to tailor these programs to individuals and not just um, the skills or what they were doing before, but also their aspirations. So is that actually what they want want to be doing? Um, and so I guess I was wondering, you know, what can we what can we take from uh, violent extremist disengagement reintegration programs um, or DDR approaches ideology? Because with violent extremist groups, for a lot of individuals, not all, but you do have an ideology that's 
that's motivating involvement. And you see that um, also in some cases of of DDR. So, um, you know, it seems in these cases, you know, you know, how can we help individuals make that transition through programming? Um, and also thinking a little bit about what you were mentioning, Kamina, um, what role does stigma play, right, uh, in their, their reintegration? I imagine the stigma will vary across those sea bags, you know, based on what they did, um, you know, while, while active. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I, I've been working on the question of the stigma for more for women than for the dosso, but it, it was a, a real point, a, a real a real matter because uh, uh, the fact that they are based within the community is uh, is, is central. They, 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 most of the time, uh, they, before, during, and after the crisis, they were. Just all living together, but the 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 power change uh, at a certain point during the crisis because they have weapons, they are more powerful than civilians. And uh, after the crisis, they get back. They were supposed, at least, to get back to their um, to the same actually um, social status. And uh, this is also a reason why uh, some of them decided um, to give to them because they were also a uh, protection needs uh, uh, and uh, why I've been I, I try to be really quick on, on that point but uh, I try to to make comparison between the three between the three cities I've been working on uh, Abidjan, uh, Boaké and uh, Korogo and I've been working with three different associations of Dozo uh, between uh, um, those uh, different locations. And what I've been observing is uh, um, depending on the location, depending on the needs, uh, the relation between the, the Dozo Association and the states is totally different. Uh, in Korogo, for instance, uh, you are in the north of the country. It's, uh, there, there are more, there are less uh, police officers, less security apparatus from the states, and there is a real need uh, from the community to get uh, protected. Uh, so there is a huge, uh, the Dozo have a huge headquarter, uh, which has been financed by, uh, by, um, politicians. During the during the crisis, uh, Bagbo and so on, like really big uh, top politicians, and uh, now sometimes uh, they were doing meetings with the 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 states um, members of the states uh, to uh, regarding the security of the the the, the area. It's really different from Abidjan, where the Dozo are playing another card, and they can't uh, because there is the police officer, and because we are in urban city, uh, we can't uh, expect from Dozo who have traditional uh, weapons, for instance, to patrol uh, in the streets. Uh, while in Korogo, in some rural area, the Dozo are the only uh, providers of security. Hey, Lauren, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I, I, thank you, Mary Beth. Um, and Camina, this is a great discussion. Um, a little bit the uh, idea of stigmatization and some of the work we're trying to do um, at NDI um, with a terrific organization, Beyond Conflict. Um, and this 
idea of stigmatization, I think, is really important and that a deeper analysis of stigmatization should really inform um, our interventions um, around individuals and around community-based armed groups themselves. Um, and I, I think one of the things that we're beginning to realize is that there's various levels of stigmatization, and that should really inform um, how you engage and how your programming should engage. Um, if we think of stigmatization, there's a continuum. There might be stigmatization um, that is simply um, misperceptions about the other group, right? Um, that... Um, you know, members of community-based armed groups are always violent, right? Or, you know, they're, you know, antisocial. We might have another category of stigmatization that others, um, you know, community-based armed groups, that um, they are not of us, um, they are different, and they are a threat, and they must be dealt with in that way. And then there's the more problematic, which we've, we've always heard, you know, about individuals, community-based armed groups members that are trying to integrate, that they are, um, uh, you know, that they are, they're microbes or they're um, particles or they're this dehumanization um, of community-based armed groups. And I think really paying attention to stigmatization, a misperception might just be bringing groups together. Othering requires greater and more, um, you know, dialogue, intergroup dialogue, and then this idea around you know, dehumanization um, really means that we need to be thinking about um, security protections, et cetera, monitoring violence um, and those types of movements. So I think this area of stigmatization is really important and really needs to be a critical part of, of our analysis. The last thing I want to say on programmatic interventions, um, Kamina, which is that I think it was threaded through all of your discussion um, around the different interventions, but I would really like to pull it out um, in the sense that we often think of engaging um, members of community-based armed groups in jobs programs or in social reconciliation programs, right? But we really don't think of this in terms of a, a governance uh, approach or a democracy and governance approach um, that often members, and Mary Beth, this is what we pick up from sort of some of the VEDR thinking, right? Um, that really, you know, members of armed groups can have legitimate grievances. Um, they can have grievances about state predation, state abandonment, state exclusion, um, et cetera, um, but that armed um, groups are, are sort of the only avenue they might have available to engage that grievance. Um, and so, I would really hope that we, you know, see a lot more in terms of um, what I would call governance engagement of community-based on groups members and groups themselves. Um, a number of, uh, and, and Kamina, your third group was doing that, right? They were they had become advocates, engaging the state. Um, so that's a governance role. They had become, you know, uh, turn their grievances into nonviolent approaches to the state. Civic education, um, I think, is another thing. Teaching community-based armed groups how they can engage governments um, to change and 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 advocate for legitimacy. 
election monitors, right? How do they engage them in, you know, pro-governance groups um, that are helping to, you know, improve community security? Um, I'll leave it at that. It's just that the only thing I will say is that I also think there's a missing middle in governance um, that we often, when we talk about GDR, we focus on state structures and how we can um, reform security sector um, institutions so that they're less predatory, more responsive to citizens. And we focus at the local level, right, on how do we help um, you know, community-based armed groups, armed group members, um, renegotiate their identities with the community. But there's this all-important missing middle in governance. Um, these are the traditional leaders that help um, governments um, translate, um, you know, governance norms down to communities. Um, these are civil servants who are trained in helping communities move past violence. Um, and I think community-based armed groups that often navigate that terrain between the state and communities can play powerful governance roles in re-establishing those connections between the state and the community. So just in terms of programming, really thinking more about that third pillar um, of governance in addition to economic and social reforms. Great. Thank you, Lauren. And that was one of the things that I was, was thinking, you know, as you were speaking is, you know, um, in, in week, you know, the DDR literature does tell us like, typically we need a certain threshold, um, you know, of, of political stability, of democracy, of these sorts of things. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering in, you know, in, in weak security environments or in weak governance environments, you know, are certain sea bags worth not disengaging, you know, if they are serving a, a hybrid governance role, obviously some we want to, would want to disengage, but, but those ones that are serving somewhat of a positive role. So I see like on the one hand, they challenge the state's monopoly on the legitimate use of force, but they are, you know, um, serving a public good. Any thoughts on that, Kamina or Lauren? Um, you can go on. No, I, I think, Mary Beth, um, that's, that's really important. I think that sea bags um, come out of, uh, they are not just security actors in their communities. Um, as Kaminas described with hunter groups, um, they provide really important um, political social norms at the local level on how communities interact with each other, how justice is served. Um, we have seen, um, uh, you know, CBAG groups rooted in um, uh, uh, important community um, social and political transitions from youth to adulthood and what it means to be an adult and a responsible member of the community. Um, we have seen uh, members of community-based armed groups um, move in and out. We see this at NDI all the time of political parties and social movements on the ground and really advocating for political transformation and change. Um, and I think that if I talked earlier about like assumptions that we make about um, community-based armed groups, um, I think that's one of the assumptions that we really have to quickly um, move past. Um, that unlike violent extremist groups and you know rebel groups that seek to overthrow the state or undermine the state, community-based armed groups have often members played important roles in seeking to transform and reform 
or shore up, you know, governance. And I think that's one of the important um, avenues for exploration for the transition of both CBAG individuals and groups. Great, thank you. Um, I do agree that they, they don't only have uh, the security um, purpose. And for instance, um, the, the one of the association I'm working I'm working with in uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, as I said, they, they they are not able to to really focus on the security aspect because the police is here and there is uh, a wall apparatus, uh, state apparatus that cannot be really overthrown. But uh, what they are doing is that they are focusing on the cultural side of uh, the dozo. As I said, the dozo are traditional hunters, and uh, so they, cover, they, they convey a, um, a message of uh, developmentalist discourse uh, to protect the nature, to protect the forest, and uh, because uh, uh, the nature is uh, under uh, is underarmed, and they, they, they create NGOs to protect the nature and to focus more on this aspect. But globally, they, they try to survive <laughs> with different strategy uh, within the, the the state apparatus. Some of them uh, have the ability to focus on security uh, purpose and others, I think, uh, are using uh, other, other, um, other domain to, 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 to maintain themselves within this uh, within the era of the state. Great. Okay, I'm going to move to some some questions. We have some questions coming in from the audience. So, um, all right. So there seem to be uh, some examples of attempts to reintegrate former terrorists or violent extremists um, uh, that can have negative security consequences. So, for example, in Afghanistan, uh, is this also a concern for CBAG? So, thinking about whether you know you um, send these individuals out into the community. That I think, Kamina, you mentioned a little bit um, about individuals. Um, um, uh, yes, I'm not working uh, on terrorism, so I, I really no, can't. No, no, but for CBAC. Uh, yeah. um, yes, most, most, most of them, what I've seen is that uh, some of them try to... They didn't, the, the case of Cote d'Ivoire is really special, so that's why sometimes it's uh, a little bit tricky, uh, even when we are talking about CBACs, because they, they have this an important role even before the crisis in the security. And so they joined the crisis, uh, some of them joined it, and after uh, they tried to to maintain the, the security sector. So uh, yes, it's a, it's a concern even for CBAG the, that some of them, after their disengagement, try to come go back uh, within the, the group for many reasons. It can be financial, it can be normative, it can be also uh, for security purposes as well. Um, how to mitigate that? Um, it's a really good question. <laughs> um, I guess by doing, uh, if we if we want to keep the DDR, um, take the, the DDR approach uh, within this framework, I think it's, uh, as I said before, it, we really need to be more uh, contextual, to be more pre uh, precise, uh, and to, uh, to have more uh, knowledge about those groups, to uh, understand what, uh, what do they, to understand their aspirations. 
Uh, and why, why, when I was talking about uh, the long-term perspective, it's because of that. Uh, sometimes the programs end after two or three years of even six months. Uh, we need to go back. It's, it, it needs uh, money. It's me. It needs uh, everything. But we need to go back sometimes two years, three years, ten years later to understand what happened to evaluate and to monitor what happened. And I think that is always missing. And if we don't do that, I mean, some researchers are doing that. We are, but uh, if it's not at a state, a state level, a uh, level, uh, it's going to be really complicated to understand uh, why they decide to uh, to re-engage and to just to mitigate this, this kind of re-engagement. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So, and the DDR literature talks a lot about that, right? So you have you have your sort of one-off programming, but DDR should be viewed as sort of part of this larger political process, right? And so even if, you know, your programming is, is successful in the sense that they're offering, you know, um, financial incentives and other things, um, you know, if those structural issues are still there and those grievances are what's motivating involvement in the CBAG or security provision for the community is still not good, then we will see individuals um, going back to those those groups. Um, Lauren, did you want to weigh in on this question? You no, know, I'll just um, add to what you um, and Commissioner Marybeth are talking about, this idea that, you know, these are actually, in many ways, um, political negotiations. Um, DDR is a political negotiation. Um, uh, community-based armed groups members can return. Um, and so I think one of the important aspects um, of that is that the community itself needs to feel that its security needs are being met, um, either through national um, level security sector reform, or, and it's something that has not come up yet in this dis discussion, the need for local accountability for the violence that was perpetrated. If the community does not feel secure um, with with these, you know, uh, former combatants entering the community, uh, then then bags will never be demobilized, right? <laughs> Effectively, the community will remobilize, or they will will encourage, you know, them not not to to go away or play other roles. Um, and then, Marianne, I think the other thing, it was a great question about um, Afghanistan um, as well, which is that I, I think, you know, and this gets to Kamina's long term, you know, there's, there's a political, structural, institutional negotiations that go on. But, you know, community-based armed groups have been in these um, communities for generations. Um, and so... And, and as part of that process, um, there has always been a community negotiation around the behaviors and social norms around violence and what these, um, you know, community-based armed groups can and cannot do within the context of the community. I think it's a great discussion around Afghanistan because sometimes, you know, these transitions are started when these mechanisms, um, uh, community mechanisms that were used to engage community-based armed groups have broken down. They're non-existent. So we're bringing these, these political security back actors back into, you know, a vacuum, a political and social, where coercive violence is the possibility. So it's just as important for us to focus on the institutional, behavioral, and normative, um, you know, uh, 
institutions that exist in the community as much as we are focused on, as Kamina had, the individual, um, because that's what's going to determine um, successful reintegration. If I may, I, I just would like to add one point, uh, is that the... Um, the re the reengagement of some of them is also due to uh, new threats because, uh, for instance, terrorism wasn't uh, a question before. I mean, 2014, 2015 in Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, there is there was this maybe two or three years during which it was really the post-crisis um, um, consequences. But after that, after the, the attacks in in, um, in Bassam, where the terrorist attack in Bassam, um, the, the communities were facing new threats and there were new needs uh, for security that the state wasn't able to, to give all the, in, in every um, area of the country. That's also a reason why the, some groups uh, re-engage to protect the community uh, because there is there were this this new needs. Have you um, have you ever seen a backlash to efforts to um, you know to disengage these community-based armed groups? I'm just thinking. I study the IRA a bit and. You know, um, when they were going through their their ceasefires, I mean, there really was worry in the community, like who's going to protect us? Um, do you see that? Do you see sort of from the community this this worry or like backlash against the disengagement of those groups? Uh, not, uh, not really for my case, but because once again, it's a layers of actors and. Uh, but in the, it's really different. I can't, I can't talk for the whole Cote d'Ivoire because I, I've not been working on all sea bags. Um, uh, for Abidjan, for instance, they were seeing the dozo and the sea bags more as a, sometimes more as a threat for mm -hmm. some part of the population at least. But when you go to the north, it really depends on the the groups. Uh, sometimes there have been so many um, violations, so many criminal activities uh, during the war and even after the war made by those sea bags that they, they are not really seeing them as, as a protectors, but as a, as a threat. Mm -hmm. But it really depends on the part of the country, on the groups. And that's the reason why I've been working quickly on the bureaucratization because the dozo, they have their... Um, they have um, clothes, traditional clothes. They have their traditional weapons as well. But what happened during, after, even before the crisis, is that some some criminals just were able to buy those clothes in the market, and they were going to do some criminal activities. So they try they they were issuing cards, official cards from the association with stamps with uh, the footprints uh, with uh, to, and they were sending the the, the cards to the make sure that when uh, police officials were, were were controlling those dozo we were patrolling with them sometimes uh, they were able to show an official cards so there was the, it was a way to take all those uh, issues yeah that's fascinating okay Lauren do you have any thoughts on this or yeah, and I think, Mary Beth, this is actually an important point, um, which which I think is important to note, you know, um, in this discussion, which is that 
Yes, I mean, I, I think there's backlash in, in as Kamina said, a, a, a heightened sense of a threat in the community. Um, as sea bags, um, because of this deteriorating security environment, form alliances with the state or are captured by the state um, or for alliances with insurgent groups. Um, and so then sort of their rootedness in community values, um, you know, sea bags, you know, perceptions um, and actions around um, the use of violence, around, you know, what is, you know, inappropriate um, threat changes, okay? And I think that is where we see sort of, you know, the, the most, um, you know, community um, backlash or nervousness around this. Um, so I'm thinking um, in the sense where, you know, we've seen community-based armed groups, ethnic groups um, in Mali aligning with um, violent extremist groups, um, often um, um, against the wishes of members of their own ethnic groups that don't want to see the politicization and um, of their own um, of their own um, existence, you know, locally, and CBACs have committed atrocities against those members of their own community, right? Um, and so then you see as well, you know, in Burkina Faso and in Nigeria, um, the capture of community-based armed groups by the state apparatus, um, you know, in the midst of insurgencies. Um, so you see community-based armed groups becoming um, intelligence gatherers. Well, that, you know, for community members is, is, is a nervous function for these, who are they reporting on? Who are they accountable to? Um, who, who, who authorizes and, and governs their activities in the community going forward and who are their allegiances to? Um, the same with, you know, you know, community-based armed groups that have been in some ways, you know, captured in whole um, by Nigerian governors um, and who are no longer sort of connected to community norms. So, and the reason I raise this is because more and more this is the norm, that community-based armed groups are being captured by um, state and other insurgent group interests. And so I think you're going to see more and more of these cases where um, they are detached from communities, from their norms, um, from their interests for longer periods of time. And I think then the reintegration of community-based armed groups, either as groups or individually, becomes much more problematic. Yeah, that was that was a very um, <laughs> uh, you know uh, disheartening comments there. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, Lauren, I just to push you a little further, like in those contexts, what can be done? Um, you know, it seems like the um, you know when you have sort of a predatory state, you know, exploiting these groups, um, you know, does it have to be a massive political like regime change? Like what? Like what? What can you do in those contexts? I mean, it doesn't seem like you could disengage. You maybe you could disengage, and that was a question I had. You know, is this always a collective process? Maybe you could disengage individuals from those groups, um, but it just—it um, seems like a very difficult situation. Um. Well, Mary Beth and, and Karina, this is where I would love your perspective as well, because we've been talking about 
DDR at the back end, right? <laughs> you know, after things have started to, to down or, and, and I, I've been thinking a little bit more about like, you know, could we set up um, mechanisms and institutions um, at the front end? You know, if we, if we are understanding that states in these um, moments of tremendous insecurity as violence rises, who are tapping into these localized actors, um, if we know that's what they're doing, right, could we not put in place um, could could not our you know engagement with security sector actors, which is almost more formal, right? You know, military to armed forces, right? Um, could we not start to engage on this issue, right? Do we put in place mechanisms around the deputization of community-based armed groups? into formal, you know, security actors? Do we put in place monitoring mechanisms? Do we, um, you know, insist that they also receive, not that it has been entirely or even remotely effective, but, you know, human rights training? Do we, you know, do we begin to accept that this is you know, a formal <laughs> arrangement with informal actors and begin to encourage um, more um, protections and professionalism around these in order to, um, you know, assist with the transition after. So you're talking about like training, professional professionalization of those groups or... Yeah, I'm talking about, um, you know, if, if that's the assumption, then why are we not engaging in our security sector, you know, um, training, which we do a lot of with these communities? And how do we encourage, you know, official military actors to help professionalize those relationships? How, if, if this is going to happen, how do we teach governors in Nigeria what appropriate civil military control of our, you know, armed actors is, even in the informal sector? And most importantly, how do we train civil society organizations on the important role they have in monitoring the operations of security forces in their communities? So... Yeah, I think those are all really important points. I guess my mind, you know, kind of goes to, um, you know, if, if I guess if the if the state military, you know, is is not, um, you know, engaging in you know protecting human rights and those sorts of things, it's really hard to then, you know, engage with them in in training of of the sea bag. So I just know cases where like the U.S. is offering military assistance, but it's it's just really hard to, um, you know, have compliance on on human rights issues and those sorts of things. And I imagine in my mind that those are the contexts where they're kind of picking up these sea bags, um, you know, to to use them. And then I guess another thing I I kind of think of is, you know. Um, in the violent extremism literature, a lot of times the state will, will ally with these groups because they want to distance themselves, right? And they can engage in all the dirty, nasty violence. Um, they can say, well, it wasn't me, it was the CBA, right? Um, so, so they do have um, sometimes an incentive not to train those forces um, to, be, to be professional, right? They're kind of using them um, in that, that sense. Kamina, did you want to add anything or? Yes, I think it's interesting, but even in Kudiwa, there were this question of uh, officializing the those dozo associations, but they they didn't want 
really far on the on this question because as uh, as Mary Beth said, it's, it's too dangerous for them. There, there are so many uh, different agendas. Uh, I think it's it's complicated and it's too risky um, for them. Uh, mainly because it's a it's still a, a polarized a polarized society. The, so it's really complicated to embrace the dozo. We were we were fighting for one side uh, and to train them officially and to make them part of the official apparatus. Uh, I guess it's one of the the reason because uh, um, if they, they still have difficulties to to control the army. That's why I was talking about the the mutiny. Uh, the security the security sector isn't. Um, isn't um, stable, and so it's really complicated, I guess, to to went further with the, the CBEX group. All right, so there's this great question that's been lingering here in the chat that I'm, I'm dying to ask from the audience, and I think it's a very important question. So, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the importance of if, if we can have them political settlements or peace processes, um, and this being part of that larger process. Um, and the question from the audience is, how should CBAGs be included or consulted in peace processes where these programs are negotiated? So when should we include CBAGs in those, those negotiations? And I guess I would push you to think about what kinds of CBAGs should be included. So some of them may be positive actors, some of them may be negative actors. Although I would add that negative actors, if they're not included, could be you know, potential spoilers of that, that peace process. Um, I would say it's better to include everyone to the table of discussion, but uh, theoretically, it's, it's easy to say, even say I'm done. Uh, but yes, it's crucial, as it's uh, important to, to have women on the table. It's it's crucial to have to try at least to have those uh, actors because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, within the rebellion there were those dozo. But uh, once the DDR process uh, started, dozo and uh, rebels were considered as the same, and it's tricky effectively because uh, those all those layers of identities uh, are really hard to distinguish. But it is important for the international community for uh, CSOs, actors, and stuff to to really make this work to to make sure that okay, a dozo while is both a rebel and a dozo uh, can can really talk about these points uh, uh, because they they probably don't have the same perspective as other groups as a woman don't have uh, the, the same perspective as uh, as a male counterpart it's really important to make sure that uh, I, I don't it's they are trying to do that even with terrorist groups but uh, with uh, it's m way more complicated but uh, I, I've, I've seen in Mali for instance they they were trying to do that great Lauren do you have any thoughts on this no I I do have some thoughts. I think it's a great question, especially Mary Beth, your uh, you know idea of spoilers versus positive members, and and I remember you know in in the research I did on you know how to typologize different community-based armed groups. Um, one of the more interesting um, approaches that I ran across, and and I think it's useful for this discussion, was in Sierra Leone. Um, where there was actually a 
a pre-negotiation phase with these community-based armed groups um, where civil society members um, went into, you know, wherever these community-based armed groups were engaged and, and sat down and said, you know, before we even get to the negotiation table, what is it going to take, you know, for you to reintegrate effectively? What are your motivations for being in these community-based armed groups? Um, what are you fighting for? How could that be transitioned into, you know, civilian life? Um, and and I thought, so my answer to that is, um, you know, that Mary Beth does two things. Number one, um, it, 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 in many ways, creates the parameters for the local peace negotiation, right? Because what is it going to take for armed actors um, to lay down their arms, right? Um, and I don't think we do that. We do it at the national level with insurgent, you know, groups, you know, what is it going to take? But I don't think we do it at the local level. There's sort of this assumption um, that, you know, a local peace process is all it takes. Um, so there's not this pre- um, but I think it also um, gets at the issue of programming, right? What is it going to take um, in terms of programming um, to make the peace processes effective and implementable after? Um, so I would throw that out. Great. Thank you. Um, there's a question from the audience about stigma um, and whether or not, so that came up um, as a potential barrier to reintegration. Um, and I know, Lauren, you mentioned that that's something you're focusing on right now. Um, and I know it's something I'm, I'm actually working on in the, the violent extremism world. Um, do you see that as something that's, you know, um, or do you see uh, social cohesion programs as something that might be useful in, in combating that stigma or? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and Kamina, I'll probably mostly turn this over to you because you were the one that mentioned, you know, the importance of stigmatization. Um, but yes, I mean, this again gets back to the idea that, you know, um, community-based art groups um, are for and of the community and cannot successfully reintegrate um, unless the community is engaged in, um, you know, um, social cohesion efforts around conflict dynamics. It's exactly said, like Kamina said, if those aren't resolved, community-based armed groups will not go away. Social cohesion around um, stigmatization and reintegrating community-based armed groups back in. If they're not reintegrated back in, um, they become um, coercive actors, gangs, vigilante groups. Um, so I think these social cohesion products are absolutely essential. Um, however, I don't think we know enough about what social cohesion projects work um, in these particular contexts. You know, what does build trust, you know, in terms of community actives and what doesn't? Um, and so that, I think, is where um, the biggest gap is to me. Yes, on social cohesion, um, but I don't think we know enough yet. Um, and so we tend to throw the same programs um, at the same conflict problems. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree that we don't know what works and that may be better suited for, you know, in, in certain contexts where maybe you have a certain threshold of security. It's very hard to ask people to 
to try and get along when they're, you know, worried that their neighbor may kill them. So I think there's, there needs to be a certain threshold of security before we start thinking about, you know, building social cohesion. And working a little bit on about that on the, regarding women reintegration, because um, what is really interesting uh, about the rebellion, for instance, from the north of Cote d'Ivoire is that uh, some young people uh, integrate the, 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 the groups because uh, they because their family, for instance, their father and their mother and or, and elsewhere, they were asking them to join the group. And but after that, it had consequences on on their on their life because uh, some of them, for the case of Cote d'Ivoire, for instance, the war was really short. Finally, the the violence, uh, the the period of violence, it was more status quo for many years than a really uh, uh, war, as we can talk, uh, as we can see for the for the Second World War, for instance, and and so on. Um, but. Uh, so they, they stay in the community. Sometimes the community pushes them to join the group. After that, uh, because because of, sometimes they have loot, they have looted, uh, or sometimes they had criminal activities. But or sometimes just because they were in the armed groups, their status changed changed uh, within the community. And sometimes it's really hard for them uh, to deal with those different identities, finally, because they, 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 they stayed within their community. They are the, the children of these communities. They, 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 they joined the group to protect their communities. And at the end, uh, sometimes the community rejects them because just it's it's really yes they, they reject them but at the same time they were asking for them to join the group so uh as i as uh, lauren said it's really i think it's a gray zone and there there is a need for really more deep research on on that uh with a social perspective uh to understand what is happening to them and and it's really important to join the to um, to work with the community as well, there is a huge work with uh, to do with the community to understand uh, uh, why they are also acted like that with the, their counterparts from Cibox and from Cibex. Yeah, those are those are really interesting points, Kamina. I think in the DDR literature, they talk a lot about the fact, you know, if, if you can have some community-based projects as well as, um, you know, information campaigns that explain, like, you know, even though this person joined this group, you know, they're not responsible for all the group's activities, or in many cases, individuals were forced to join a group. So, so trying to inform the community um, a little bit can help. Not that it can completely eliminate stigma, but that it can can help. All right, so I want to end on a positive note here. <laughs> um, so there's a question um, in, from the audience. How can CBAGs more effectively use their skills to serve communities um, and better support peace building? So I'm, I think we're talking about the positive CBAGs here, but how can they you know, help with these societal transformations? We keep talking about large structural transformations. Um, you know, is it possible for them to, to be avenues for change in these societies? to take that one. Lauren, do you want to start? <laughs> I guess we're not a very positive group, but <laughs> um, no, that's not true. Um, well, I, I think I would like to see us, again, on the governance angle, um, think of more positive governance roles um, that we could um, 
uh, imagine um, for community-based armed groups to play. Um, so, for example, you know, there's often a huge um, gap um, in, for example, disaster response and disaster relief, right? Um, in that, you know, the state can't get to many of these more um, remote communities. Could we think of ways that community-based armed groups could play roles in disaster response and disaster relief that um, satisfy um for those that are play that more um, negotiated role in terms of violence to satisfy their needs of service, um, take advantage of the skills they have. But this is where I really would like to think about in terms of community-based armed groups is, and then how can we help community-based armed groups connect local communities to the state, right? Um, in more positive, transformative ways. Um, election observers, so transforming um, community-based armed groups into uh, other types of security networks. Um, it, th that's how I think, um, again, in terms of more governance functions. And the last I'll say is that, you know, we've been doing some work um, you know, in terms of civil society groups um, looking to engage um, community-based armed groups in um, Libya um, in making the transition um, to civil society. Um, so again, moving towards their 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 need for advocacy um, and their need for transformation, but putting it in a more nonviolent place. Mina, do you want to have the, the last word? <laughs> Oh, I think you may be muted. There you go. Uh, yes, really quick. I think they have uh, indeed multiple roles, and uh, even in the security sector, they they are important actors in still in Cote d'Ivoire. And as I as I said, uh, with those new threats uh, as terrorism, uh, it's important to be, as I said, also um, trying to work on different uh, uh, domain, uh, even on the uh, protect protect the nature, protect the forest, protect the, the protect us from the climate change. So they are really smart actors, and it's important for us to. Uh, understand them well uh, to make sure that uh, um, we will stay protect. Great, thank you. And so I think there are some commonalities in our discussion across the DDR and the violent extremism literature, you know, just in the fact that we need to really carefully consider the context that these groups are operating in, the larger political structures, as, as well as the individuals involved in these groups. What are their motivations? What are their histories? What are their, their aspirations? So with that, I'm going to turn it over to the Resolve Director, Alistair Reed, to, to wrap us up. Thank you, though. Great. Thank you very much um, to all of our speakers today, and thank you, all of you, for joining us. Um, this has been a really fascinating, engaging discussion, which has given us much food for thought. And it's been a great conclusion to this phase of our CBAGS project. Um, please do visit our website to explore our past CBAGS publication. There's a rich library of, um, of research there, but also watch out for our latest publications coming out in the next few weeks. We hope to build on our research on sea bags in the future by further investigating disengagement and reconciliation of sea bags, as well as to explore their formation activities in different regions across the world. Finally, 
today's event was the first in our annual Global Forum series of events. So please do keep an eye on our website and social media for information on the next events in this series happening over the coming months. Thank you, and I hope you all have a good day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.